Welcome to Your Bible, custom designed to your Bible reading plan and weekly podcast by myself, Chris Case, pastor of Resonate Church, and I'm here with Sarah Pasquale, our executive director. Hey there. So week 25, more Jeremiah, in case you're not tired of it yet, and uh, we'll wrap up James and First Peter and start First Peter as well. And so once again, Jeremiah reminds the people to repent, change their ways, stop oppressing widows and orphans, stop shedding innocent blood, uh, make sure you punish robbers, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Justice. We want justice amongst the people. It's again, it's that consistent reminder, like these are the things you were to do. You didn't do them. You were being punished for that. And then we're reminded uh, once again, Shalom is not coming back. Uh, The the building of sort of the sons of Josiah, the, the, the offspring here, they've built fancy palaces once again, sort of on the injustice of others. And mm-hmm. so Shalom, Jehoiakim, it's all going to not go well for them. And not only that, we're going to find out Jehoiachin will also be cut off and sent into exile. Yeah. So God here is saying too that David's descendants are going to stop ruling in Judah. And so when you read this, you should have stepped back and been like, but wait, what about God's promise to David that someone would always be ruling on the throne? Yeah. And so God speaks to that right away. Yeah. And, and we're reminded once again, I mean, the intro to this is that the priest who should have been shepherding his people have actually scattered the flock, but God's going to regather this flock again. So he almost blames the the lack of a king on the throne on the priest here in some ways, but um, God's going to reconvene. He's going to gather the flock back together uh, back in the promised land. He's going to establish a, a better leader, almost like this image of like a tree that's cut down and only a stump sort of remains, but that out of that stump, out of the root will shoot uh, this new branch um, and it will certainly be different. He will rule righteously uh, for once and, um, yeah, a, a truly different king, a, a deliverer. Um, and it, and we're, we're compared there in that language, that God will be their deliverer, not just the deliverer from Egypt, not but the, almost this Babylonian kind of recapitulation mm-hmm. of the Egypt idea. Yeah. God will raise up a better and a perfect king to lead Israel and restore them to the promised land. And this is our messianic picture. The New Testament writers look back at this and they consider Jesus as a fulfillment of this promise. Jesus was the righteous branch. And even when you think about what we read in Colossians a couple of weeks ago, as Christ is ruling, he is now ruling um, and he is our perfect king. Yeah, I mean, the the naming of this will be the Lord is my righteousness. And so uh, one of the principal things we find out about Jesus is that he is the righteousness of God that's been revealed. And so um, when when we say the Lord is my righteousness, it's an easy connection point um, from this text into some of what Paul says about Jesus, that that he is the righteousness of God and, and we get his righteousness and he ultimately takes on our sin. Yeah. And then these prophets, once again, um, there's a lot of them. There's false prophets coming out of Samaria who kind of work through Baal. There's pr- false prophets at Jerusalem. And God's really having none of it. They're all kind of speaking of their own fantasies, their own delusions, and they're just not bringing true messages. And they refuse to stand before God and take God's counsel. So God's going to speak a word to them that's almost like a hammer, is the analogy used there. And um, and then even if the people ask, like, why why is God so burdened around all this? And God's, God says to Jeremiah, well, say to them, like, you're my burden. Like, you are the problem. And uh, whenever they complain, like, why is God so worked up about all this? This section really made me think about all the false teachers and prophets in our modern day. And maybe they don't call themselves prophets, but these are the people whose sermons we listen to, whose books we read, whose influencers we follow on Instagram. The people who 
teach things like God is pleased with you for fill in the blank when that statement is a direct contradiction of scripture. It is all around us. So don't think that these false prophets and these liars are just an ancient times thing. When are you seeing this? Pay attention to the input around you and make sure that you can identify truth according to scripture versus what people are saying and how they're misrepresenting God. Yeah. And then there's a the conversation about good fruit and bad fruit. And so, um, there, there are, there going to be those who, um, who fight and die and those that, um, will die by the sword or die by disease. And there's a way that God's going to sort a whole lot of things out. There'll be those taken into exile and those who will be taken into exile will be the good fruit. And then there's going to be bad fruit that stay behind. Maybe they put up the fight. Maybe they keep trying to work against Babylon. And so God's going to point out like, look, like I'm, I'm going to extract my faithful remnant and I'm going to return them home. Home, but they're mm-hmm. going to be good fruit and everything else will be considered bad fruit. Yeah. And then we're reminded that this is going to be 70 years. Uh, like we said, Jeremiah is not chronologically linear. And so there'll be some jumping around and some of the storytelling and, and what gets stated. Mm-hmm. And then the cup of the Lord's wrath, this idea that God is saying like, look, give this cup, this, this wrath of mine to these countries and I'm going to pour out my wrath on them. And they're all going to drink from this and, and it's going to be this, this kind of image of, and a connection of this cup to God's wrath, which becomes very Jesus-oriented to us. Yeah, this cup really represented God's judgment against all who opposed him and did evil. But then we hop to the New Testament and Luke, and we hear about Jesus praying about a cup. Uh, Christ's cup of wrath was filled with our opposition and evil against God. Yeah, I mean, part of the garden moment is is the uh, this request from Jesus to take this cup away right. from me. And, and that cup, I mean— Really, the only interpretation we're sort of left with in Scripture is this very idea that there's a a wrath of God to be poured out upon the sin of the nations. And Jesus is saying, like, ah, I don't know if I'm willing to, uh, if I if I desire to really drink from that right now. And he he ultimately says, "Your will be done, God." But um, this this sort of weight of God's punishment for sin. And then Jeremiah's threatened, circling back again. Jeremiah goes to the temple to preach, uh, and everybody wants to kill him. Jeremiah's sort of at this point uh, saying, if I die, the blood's on your hands now. Yeah. Have you guys seen the transformation in Jeremiah here since what we read last week? He finally seems to be at peace with his future and trusts God in a way he didn't early on in his calling. Instead of, God, why am I going to die? It's do what you want for the Lord sent me. What a gift, I think, for us that we can see Jeremiah's kind of progressive sanctification throughout our reading. So take heart that this is happening in your own life as well. One day you're asking, or you may be asking questions now that you won't be asking years down the road, or think back when there were certain things you struggled with that you willingly accept now. We see that in Jeremiah also. Yeah, but they end up not killing him. Uh, they even point out, like, look, Micah said some harsh things to Hezekiah, and Hezekiah didn't kill him, which is probably exactly the point. It's like, yes, Hezekiah listened. He repented. He trusted the Lord. Like, maybe the people should do that. Um, and then there's this other prophet that we find out about who is also saying some harsh things to Israel, and they want to kill him. And he does what Jeremiah doesn't do. Jeremiah, st- in the face of opposition, Jeremiah stays and is willing to confront, and Uriah ends up running away and ends up being killed for it. So So we see God upholding the promise he made to Jeremiah in chapter one. I read a book recently that says something along the lines of all Christians are immortal until their work is done. And depending on where you are in your life, this may or may not feel like good news or comfort to you, but it's definitely encouraging to me. And we see it played out here in Jeremiah's life. 
Yeah. And so um, we find out about this yoke. Uh, it's the first time we sort of get into this phrasing. Um, but they're told, don't fight back. And this yoke is coming. You're going to be under the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar, at least for a time period. Um, you and the other surrounding nations. Jeremiah here seems to really emphasize God's sovereignty in this prophetic message about the yoke. God is sovereign and his will will be accomplished and humanity kind of will be punished for their wickedness. Whether you try to prevent it or not, God's sovereign will is going to be accomplished. Yeah. Once again, false prophets, uh, they're saying all the opposite things of Jeremiah. They're like, oh, no, you're not going to have Nebuchadnezzar's yoke and it'll be fine. Um, and Jeremiah is sort of like, well, it's like God has always sent prophets in the past and usually their message is, is kind of corrective or harsh, but yet your yours is all nice. Like, do you think you're some sort of different prophet than all the other prophets that you would come and do this? And then God through Jeremiah is like, well, you, you were going to have a wood yoke, but now you're going to have an iron yoke. And, um, and once again, we're in the iron age. So that makes sense. And we're actually at the tail end. So right after their captivity, they'll, they'll make a shift out of iron. So this is like the last vestige of the iron age that they will experience. Yeah. And I wonder if Hananiah thought he was listening to the voice of God and he just had a total misunderstanding. Uh, I mean, we don't know, but if nothing else, this should be a caution to us not to represent God's voice unless we truly know what he's saying. For real. And so uh, Jeremiah writes a letter uh, to the exiles. And so um, he, he, he speaks about um, that they should ultimately go about some of the routines of life. Like, don't hold up the whole time you're there. Build houses, plant need from gardens, have your sons and daughters get married, seek the welfare or shalom of the city and in its welfare and it's in its shalom, like you will find your goodness too. And so, um, but, but he's still reminding them like, this is not your place, but while you're there, like seek it's good, like make an impact on the city around you. And while you're doing that, Nebuchadnezzar is going to clean house in Jerusalem and Judah. And, and ultimately I'll bring you back there to where you really belong. But while you're there, while you're in exile, do these things. I hope that you really enjoyed reading Jeremiah 29 in context. Often we just really love Jeremiah 29 11. Um, but we see when you look at it in context that this is really about God's work of delivering people when they call out for help. They are gaining this promise as exiles and they are being encouraged to be blessings where they are planted and to have hope in God's work of hearing and restoring people. And so for us, as we are exiles in America or wherever we live, we are to seek the welfare of our place of exile. But remember that whatever you know our passport says is not our true home. It is even more stirring to know and interpret this passage when we understand Sam, what is going on at the time and um, to read as God speaking to a group and a community rather than just individuals. And so once again, some more false prophecy. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, this, this priest gets this kind of hate mail from Shemaiah, lets Jeremiah in on it. And so Jeremiah is not having any of it. Yeah. And we end up once again, getting this sort of promise. Uh, we'll wrap up kind of with these last uh, couple chapters of, of, of good, the restoration of Israel and Judah, that yes, they will have these pains and they'll be like childbirth, but there'll be a restoration. The nations who have brought so much suffering and so much calamity, they will be dealt with and there will be a rebuilding of the city. Yeah. So we just started on chapter 30 and chapters 32, 33 are kind of considered to be the literary climax of the book of Jeremiah, where we hear reiterate in in a number of different ways that God is not going to forget his people. There is a future deliverer and deliverance coming. And Yahweh here is the only one who truly loves enough to heal and to save. And even though we don't understand all of what's happening, there is hope. And chapter 31 is just a long and rich chapter. There's so mm-hmm. much in there. 
you know, they'll find God again. They'll reaffirm his love. It'll be like both vineyards and be joyful. Everyone's coming back. Every like blind, the lame, every, all, everybody's coming back and they'll be like a well-watered garden again. The priests will be satisfied. Women will be singing. And, and they even use this analogy of, of Rachel. Um, and, and, uh, so Rachel's the wife of, of Jacob or Israel and metaphorically Rachel's crying over her lost children, the lost children of Israel. And, and God comforts her saying like, look, I'm bringing them back. This I'm taking them back to the land. And, and God reminds him, look, set up signposts so you don't return this way again. And so um, not only that, but we even get this phrase of like, I, I can satisfy God saying, I will satisfy the weary soul yeah. or even um, um, heavy laden or languishing soul. I will replenish. And so uh, just thinking back to Jesus's words, that's somewhat why he's so provocative when he says, come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest or replenishment depending on the language. And so Jesus has used his own name for God here. Uh, and mm-hmm. so, um, yeah, for anybody that feels like Jesus doesn't claim he's God, it's like, it's all over the day New Testament, but that's another side point. <laughs> so we truly see God's heart and that he, as much as he's been speaking about wrath and judgment, he's not forsaking his people. And this is for our good and his glory. Yep. And we find out about this new covenant mm-hmm. that God's going to, it's sort of the, one of the beginning introductions that there's this new covenant that God's going to establish eventually. Um, and he will make this new covenant and he'll have a law that's written on our hearts, which is something they've always been commanded to, but I think there'll be a new way. Uh, and he'll speak about that more, this this heart of stone versus heart of flesh and stuff that he'll unpack. And, and there, there's going to be such a pervasiveness to the gospel that those around them, you'll be like, no God, but like, of course, we all know God. Like, that's that's the expectation. And so there'll be forgiveness and remembrance of sin. Uh, no more. It'll all be gone. And so there's a, a new order that will come with this new covenant. Yeah, this is a really key passage of scripture that theologians will use when we talk about covenant theology or these ideas around understanding the covenant God made with Abraham or the covenant God made with Noah. This is the new covenant passage that really points us to Christ. Yep. So jump into James. Um, uh, we start talking about the sort of the boasting of tomorrow. Once again, like I know there's breaks in the weekends between your readings, but like James just kind of scolded the, 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 these, these folks about like applying the job lawgiver that, that there's really only one lawgiver and judge and, and, it, and, and who are you to judge your neighbor? It's only him who's able to save and destroy like that. God's the one really in charge. And I think the same idea continues through this thought, this sort of like, who are you to take a God like role about your own future? Like you, you don't determine these things just like you don't get to determine determine and, and be the judge of people, you also like, you're not God. You you don't know the future. So quit acting like you could control the future. Like you're a mist. Stop acting like you're more than that. Um, and it's reminding people like God is sovereign. You're not. And so trust in him. They'll trust in your own powers and self. James is pointing out here that when we plan our future outside of God, that is a form of pride. And so he warns us that when you arrogantly make plans for a future, for the future for yourself, you've forgotten that you are passing. We are passing. God is eternal, and God is the one who holds our future. And so he reminds us that genuine faith lives out gospel-driven humility in how we make our plans in the future. 
And some of the people that sometimes struggle the most with like control and, and confidence and self are often in the category of those who are wealthy in this world. Uh, and even more so, James is addressing sort of this heart attitude because it's it's also people as he identifies them as, as people who have specifically made their wealth off the exploitation of others. And and um, he's, he's even saying like, you have condemned and you have murdered others to, to get your wealth. And so um, I, I don't know if this is a catch-all that all rich are... Are, are are the target of exactly what James is after here. Uh, but those that um, are exploiting others and are very comfortable in their own things and probably in, in sort of a very self-confident way um, in this position, position of privilege and power are abusing that sense of power and privilege uh, for their own gain. Yeah, it seems to me that James is warning us here that when you obtain wealth unjustly and live in luxury and self-indulgence, you've prepared for your self-condemnation as you've condemned and murdered the righteous person. And for me personally, this was the passage that when I studied it a year or two ago that really changed the way I approached purchasing items, especially of clothing. Uh, Because I suddenly, as I was watching or as I was reading this and thinking about crying out, I got this image in my mind of people, especially women and children, just crying out in different kind of garment factories on the other side of the globe. And those cries out coming to my ears, I bought and wore (laughs) cheap clothing to make a deal and worshiped God while I was wearing it. And so if, if you are, I mean, most everybody, if not everybody listening to this, we are the rich. And so for us, a life of genuine faith means stewarding those riches in a way that give honor and thought and dignity to the poor, those who we can see in front of us and those who we cannot see, but provide the majority of the things we purchase. And so um, the instruction coming right off of that is to, to go ahead and be patient. Just like a farmer waiting for crops to come up, the Lord can come at any time. So patience, like in your patience, don't start complaining about others. Like look to the prophets as an example. Like they, everybody was attacking them and yet they remained steadfast. They, they were suffering. There was words thrown at them, but they were steadfast and patient. So um, be, be patient, be steadfast. And while you're at it, don't try to drag God into your oath in this process. Like as if someone owes you something or something along those lines, similar to Japheth, like don't, don't make an oath in God's name for, for anything. Just let your yes be yes. Like say what's true. That way your language can't be used against like, be careful about your language once again. Yeah. Genuine faith looks like patience and suffering and being true to your word. And then, uh, and then we get instructions about prayer and, and, um, and just about all things that we would pray, that we would sing, and depending on the situation. And if you're sick, sick you would seek out specific, specifically leaders that will pray for you, particularly elders. And, um, if you, and, and for James, like, I think he has more than just the physical healing in mind here. Like, the person that pursues God in faith in the midst of their suffering, like, there's something greater. There's forgiveness of sins. There's salvation. There's healing of the soul. There's something about moving forward. It's, it's once again, going back back to the, the, the faith and the action. Like there's something about moving forward towards God, trusting in him in action. And one of those trust ways is, is in prayer that, that God brings about healing. And maybe it is a more soul healing than it is sometimes a physical one, but that we would pray that we would confess sins and, and do those in community. Um, and that's, that's the prayer of the righteous, even more so like sometimes it's even good to, to Jesusize that. Like it, it's, yes, we are righteous because of Jesus's work, but like, the only one who's truly righteous was Jesus. And guess what? Like his prayers are powerful and effective. So when he's saying on the cross, like forgive them, they don't know what they're mm-hmm. doing. Like that is a powerful and effective prayer for our salvation. Um, and Jesus is our example in that. Yeah. So James here 
emphasizes that we should pray in all circumstances. Pray when you are sick, pray when you're cheerful, uh, pray people back from wandering. So which areas in your life do you forget to pray? I think we all probably have them. Do you forget to pray when things are going well or when you're struggling or when you're sick? Focus on some of those areas and start to lean into a life of prayer in the areas that you may be neglectful in praying in in the past. And James does speak to the value of um, going after those who are sort of wandering away. And I mean, we're living in a day and age where a good number of us um, probably have friends or people, acquaintances or people maybe that were like youth group leaders and students that you really looked up to, whatever it may be, that have sort of like fallen away. And um, I think James is pointing out, look, there's value of, of, of going after. There's value of kind of um, reaching out and seeking people that seem to have sort of kind of walked away from maybe their faith at the moment. And so um, don't give up hope. See, yeah. see, see if there's a way to pursue so final thoughts on James? I really like the book of James. It just feels like a like a deep drink of water, I guess. Um, Paul seems to, when we read Paul's letters, he just seems to hit on so many different topics. Every sentence feels like a new thing. But James kind of chooses an idea and sits with it for a little while, and then he'll come back to it too. So almost everything we read in James chapter 1, we read again, or he went in a dive, deep, dive, deep dive on in chapters 2 through 5. So following the theme of genuine faith and getting practical application that overflows out of a love for God uh, was felt really refreshing. I mean, there were a lot of opportunities for repentance and reflection, but I really appreciated the slow nature to reading his wisdom literature. Yeah, it's interesting um, historically because you, you deal with um, – the Reformation and and part of the Reformation was like the church required so many works as part of the faith that were like extra biblical in so many different ways that when the reformers came around, they got to James and like, can we get rid of James? And, um, and that was questionable and the good thing they didn't because there's also a way right. that things swing in the other direction and, and particularly like where our church is and stuff like that. Some of the cultural trends are a little more on the let's, let's really kind of go the license way, the way of like, look, like Jesus covered our sins. So obedience, like, yeah, like if we could do it, great. But if not, like Jesus will still cover that. Um, and, and in so doing kind of swings probably too far the other way. And I think James becomes a really healthy book. Um, I mean, for, for my soul too, of, of going like, look, like the, 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 the desire to be obedient should still be accompanying the faith that I have. Like I, I have faith so that I can stumble, but I still have to stumble forward and, um, mm-hmm. in obedience. And so, um, got James is like, look, like your, your faith should be accompanied by works and it still is not the works that save you, but it still works. And so, and that's laid out in all the different ways with language and stuff like that. But, um, that, that sort of push sometimes against, um, the overemphasis on the freedom we have in Christ, um, that, that James helps us keep in balance. And I know Paul sometimes brings that back and balances that back. But uh, I think James is always an important book to keep around, particularly for those of us that um, really love to, to focus on the grace, which is a really good thing. I'm never going to downplay grace, but um, to, to remind, like, look, like grace is accompanied by a faith that, that has an obedient side to it. Yeah. So first Peter, um, Finally get to read a letter written by Peter. Yeah. I mean, he's 
he's the rock in some ways the, the church is built upon in some ways. And so, um, yeah. And so we finally get some of his writings, which we really haven't got of maybe Mark's is Peter's, but other than that, this is Peter's first letter that we read out. And it's important to point out of all the letters we have, like we certainly have Paul in a ton of them. And then we get Peter and James and John. And so, um, if you're, if you're in X 15, like this is the, the central group of people writing letters to, to the church. And so, um, and not only that, it's good to know geography. James, uh, as we just read, he's kind of coming out of Jerusalem and the Jewish church there. Uh, John is in sort of Asia or, or Asia Minor, which is sort of Western Turkey, Ephesus, places like that. And Peter kind of covers the rest of Turkey. And the rest of Turkey, particularly at this time, it's like it's a little more rural. Uh, it's not as Roman. The, the, the Roman cities are port cities, so inland Turkey is not quite as. Uh, uh, focused on. And so, um, you would actually have uh, a part of the world where some people would actually probably flee Roman persecution to get to. And so some of the suffering and stuff like that, that you're going to encounter in this letter, you started encountering this week, um, might be people fleeing their persecutions. So they might've experienced it somewhere else. Uh, but anyway, around Rome's still going to could be coming to town and there's still going to be some sense of persecution. And not only that, there's gonna be persecution from their own, um, from the, from the Jews in these cities too, because this is a, what was it about one third of the people in most of these areas were Jewish at the time. And so, mm. um, and, and so they had a very, a, a very conservative version of Judaism. So these like mixed company, Gentile, Jewish, uh, Jesus followers, uh, were not always appreciated if we remember going back to Galatians. And so, um, all this is happening in this letter. So there's language around persecution, there's hope, there's submission to rulers, there's, um, and, and, and fighting the temptation to, or, or, or working the temptation to, to not fight back um, and suffering certainly marks a lot of this book. And I think it's always helpful to remember like the author here because you have Peter and one of the last kind of parts of this story, other than like the restoration story of Jesus is like Jesus is about to be crucified. And Peter's the one who takes out a sword and cuts off an ear um, and not only that, but like then he gets questioned about his affiliation with Jesus and, and, and in this moment where he could be persecuted too, and he can be um, uh, put to death too. Peter becomes the denier of Jesus. And yet in this letter, we're going to see such a restoration of Peter because he's going to be the one saying, look, like don't fight back in terms of like the sword or force or physical violence. And, and not only that, but like don't flee in the face of persecution. Like your job's not avoidance here. And so the, the lessons seem to have really gotten learned for Peter. Yeah. Follow the themes of suffering and perseverance and hope. Yep. And so there's a simple greeting. Um, and, and not only that, but Peter uses the term elect exile. So uh, some of the idea that Jeremiah just played out for, for what does it look like to live as uh, people in a foreign land that's not their true home, I think it's applied here for these people. Yeah. I like how in his greeting, he talks about the Trinity. He talks about the Father's foreknowledge and the Spirit's sanctification and the sprinkling of Jesus Christ's blood as we get this very Trinitarian greeting. Yeah, and he speaks about uh, sort of this living hope that sort of how great the Father is. Like he raised Jesus, his own son from the dead, and now we get brand new life. We get this living hope because of it. That God is the keeper of this inheritance too, this this sort of uh, this this living hope and this eternal life. Like he's the keeper of it. It's so certain. So let's rejoice. That's, that's so amazing. And this, this rejoicing, like, yes, but in this moment, like there's still pain. Like as much as we're rejoicing, there's still suffering, but it's not without its purpose. And, and this is kind of the key piece too. It's like, look, you're suffering and it, it may not be a whole lot of joy in that, but 
it has it has a purpose to it and it's to mature it's to show genuine faith it's it's proving that faith is not fake and so don't 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 flee from suffering it's not necessarily always a bad thing and you may not enjoy it but but at least see the perspective of god in this um and he reminds him like how awesome you guys are that like you didn't even see jesus and yet you have this faith that's that's being worked out like this is this is that god's working through this like that this will be a certain outcome in the salvation of your souls so he says here that we can rejoice in our sufferings because they are producing an eternal joy in us, which is inexpressible. Right. As much as we don't like suffering, it's necessary for us. It purifies us and approves the genuineness of our faith. And when you think of genuine faith, think of everything we just studied in James. So as believers, suffering is not the end, but it is a work that is happening in us that will result in glory. This is very, very different than the world around us and our and views on it is very different. It doesn't mean that it's not hard or that we don't want suffering to end, but that we receive and sometimes even welcome the word, the work God is doing in us through suffering. And it's so much better news than the alternative where it would be a God who um, is powerless in the face of the suffering of his people. Like that's not the picture we get. We, yeah. we get a God who um, can hold the crucible and, um, and, and will utilize it. That's why um, what what anybody, even even what man might mean for evil, God could still in turn use it mm-hmm. for good. And so um, sometimes that emphasis on His sovereignty becomes sort of almost like this this cozy blanket in the midst of um, really painful times and seasons. And so he calls his people to be holy, uh, the sort of new life, like be prepared for it, like the, what's coming, focus on what matters. And that's Jesus. Don't get caught up in the passions of this world. Yeah. Like care about your life being shaped by, by God's life, a holy life. And, and when you call on God, like he helps like a father would, but that doesn't mean, but just like a father would too, like he doesn't tolerate disobedience. So, so live a, a renewed life. And, and, and he reminds Paul or Peter reminds his people like this was costly for you. This life that was given up, it cost Jesus his life, his, his blood, his precious blood was what purchased your life. And this was always the plan. And because of the risen Christ, like not believe in that. And I, I know it's a bit of a cliche analogy, but, but, but Peter almost, um, the, 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 the storyline of, of Jean Valjean and the priest and, um, the priest ultimately buying Jean Valjean's freedom by giving him these, the silver and stuff like that. If you don't know the story that John Valjean is about to have to go back to prison, um, basically forever for the rest of his life. And this priest basically like, um, tells, tells these cops that Jean Valjean didn't steal some stuff and gives him uh, ultimately all the silver. And he reminds Jean Valjean, look, I've bought your soul for God. And, um, and the, 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 the setup there is that go now live, a, a life reflective of that purchase that it was worthy of that purchase. And so that's sort of what Peter's after here. Like go live this sync life, like that your soul will be clean. Go love one another. Like don't live like this world and these passions again. Yeah, I think it comes back to that eternal perspective, which Peter is emphasizing because we have this living hope through Christ. We've got to be prepared for action. We need to set our hope on Christ and live lives that look like Jesus and not the world. It's all about perspective. And when your perspective is eternal and you are assured in your faith and your salvation, then you will live in the present differently. 
And so, once again, there's further instructions. He instructs them to put away relational strife. There's some push in this next chapter or this next uh, starting point in chapter two towards the unity of these people that um, he uses this picture of like living stones and and that God is building in some ways a new sort of sanctuary. And it's not a physical building, which um, the, the Jews and the Greeks would have certainly understood, but stones, they're living, they're people, and they're being knitted together to build this new kind of temple. So in the face of persecution, the face of suffering affecting his people, Peter's actually appealing for the, to their sense of unity. So as you're afflicted, mm-hmm. you need to find unity that that in their community, bound together by brotherly love, that they would uh, f- be the very dwelling place of God. And the sacrifices, like like in this temple, uh, it's their own lives. And so it's 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 reminding them like you're you're God's special, set apart people, and you won't always, but now you are, and you've received mercy. So live differently. Be this temple, be distinct, be the dwelling place of God. And may they encounter God when they encounter you, this mm-hmm. merciful, loving, full of good deeds kind of people. Uh, even if people are trying to tear you down, that you respond by by mercy and love. And so that that's sort of the setup for how God's people can be. It's such a dream. It's such a picture. I so long to be uh, um, and to lead maybe or be a part of uh, a church that that really lives this out in its fullness. So we've referenced 1 Peter 2.9 a lot as we've been reading about this idea of us being a royal priesthood, a chosen race, a holy nation, and so on. And so now that we've read so much of the Old Testament, does reading this just not totally blow your mind? I mean, everything Israel was to be to the nations around them. We are. We are the chosen race, the holy nation, the people for his own possession. But get this, so that we can proclaim the excellencies of of Christ and all he has done. So he has made us all these things, not just to take it into ourselves and receive it that we get to do that, but also to give him away to others. Yeah. So uh, let's jump to Proverbs 16. Um, There's certainly an emphasis on... um, the sovereignty of God yeah. here. I mean, we see God weighing the spirit, him establishing plans that are committed to him and yeah. how God made everything for his purpose. I mean, even going back to James where people, where James is like, look, look, like you make plans for your day. It's like, you're, you're but a mist. And I think the same thing is holds true in this proverb. It's like, commit to the Lord what you do, but he's the one who's going to establish your plans. Mm-hmm. And uh, you may plan your course, but it's the Lord that's established your, your steps. Um, and, and not only that, but sort of the bringing down of pride and the danger of it, Pride goes before destruction and the haughty spirit, the prideful spirit before the fall. Yeah. And then Psalm 75. So there's a big theme of like lifting up and bringing down. The word lift shows up five times in the 10 verses. And so the ultimate, you know, lesson is that we're not to lift ourselves up, but to humble ourselves before the Lord and he will lift us up. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, there's once again, language around the the cup of God's wrath. It's, it's said like, it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up the other for mm-hmm. in the hand of the Lord, there's a cup with foaming wine, well mixed and he pours out from it and all the wicked of the earth shall drink down to its dregs. And um, it's certainly this very um, judgmental prophetic kind of language, but at the same time, the good news is, is, Jesus is the one who drinks down to the dregs from that cup so that God's judgment, that that cup would no longer be directed at us. Yeah. That's good news. Psalm 117. Short and sweet. Yeah. If you ever wanted to memorize a psalm, this would probably be a good one to start with. Um, And it covers like the very basic few lines that are almost refrains in multiple psalms. Yeah. 
And then the beginning of Psalm 118. So Psalm 118 is the final song of ascent. It's sung as people enter Jerusalem, or sometimes I think maybe as they climb up the steps to the temple. But it's an it's an invitation. It's an invocation that all people in all creation is to worship God. Yeah. The reminder of God's love doesn't fail. And so stop putting your trust in other things like Israel's been doing, like in Egypt and things like that. And, and the writer's like, the Lord is my salvation. Like, I'm going to trust in him. Like, those other things just don't provide the sort of salvation that God does. So next week. So we're going to still read a little bit of the new covenant in Jeremiah. And I think one of the challenges to reading straight through the Bible or reading through the Bible in two years, I guess, is that we spend the same amount of time on every single passage, which is good for us to read it all. But these passages like the new covenant or other things we read in scripture, really we should devote some time to reading and studying. So take some time in that this week as you read Jeremiah. And then in the new Testament, as we continue to read first Peter, just compare it to what we've read in James. What is, what parallels are there? Uh, where do they write about similar things? Where do they write about different things? And so we're going to hear more in Jeremiah about hope. And I'm certainly going to get into some of the narrative. Um, so, so less of some some of the prophetic like uh, future new covenant stuff, but back into his own suffering, people working against him. Um, and there's a little bit of question to me of like Jeremiah's response when, when he he's going to be given the option of whether to go into exile or stay and, and his decision there and, and why he decides to, to do what he does. And so mm. um, I'm, I'm, I'm still processing it myself. And then new Testament, uh, this is a pretty short letter from Peter uh, as we've already started in the sort of the suffering of the churches, but with a very little, economy of words and a pretty short letter what does peter really focus on and why like you know, it, it sometimes is a, a little bit um odd i think to, to be able to have this one letter uh, i guess we have two letters from peter but um to focus on a few of the things he does and so um start thinking about like why, why are these the things that matter uh, in the midst of of the letter of all the things that peter could talk about and so yeah that's it thanks, thanks y'all. guys